Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. On today's show, A.M. Holmes on her new novel, The Unfolding. A.M. Holmes is the author of seven novels, including May We Be Forgiven, which won the Women's Prize for Fiction in 2013, and This Book Will Save Your Life, a Richard and Judy pick in 2007. Three collections of short stories and the highly acclaimed memoir, The Mistress's Daughter, She's a contributing editor to Vanity Fair, writes frequently on arts and culture for numerous publications, and teaches in the creative writing program at Princeton. And today we're going to be talking about her latest novel, which is The Unfolding. A.M. Holmes, welcome to Little Atoms. Thank you so much for having me, Neil. It's a thrill to be here. Tell me, first of all, how you would describe this novel then. Well, my descriptions of it would probably be very different from anybody else's, because I say wild things like, if John Waters and Joan Didion had a baby, this would be it which probably isn't the best description. How would I describe it? I guess I would say it is, it's a state of the nation novel and it's very much a braided narrative. It's on the one hand about almost a forensic look at American politics and culture from 2008 and before till right now. And as much as it's about that, it's also about a family dealing with secrets and the power of secrets and kind of coming to consciousness about who they are and who they hope to become. So it's 10 years since your last novel, May We Be Forgiven, and we'll come back to maybe why in a moment. But before we do, that novel featured a character who was a, a historian of Richard Nixon. This story is fundamentally about the soul of the Republican Party. So do you see the two as thematically linked? I see them as thematically linked in the sense that they both come from me in that sense of my interest in politics and history has always been there. And I would say it's just grown more so. And I, I'm a huge fan of, of Don DeLillo. And that's sort of the reference for the Nixon scholar and they would be forgiven. And I think in this book, it was a chance for me to explore the way that fiction can sort of unpack or even anticipate history in some ways. So in that sense, absolutely, they're linked. Sure. So let's talk about why 10 years then. Has it taken that long to write? You know, everything from when I first had the idea for this book, which was really a long time ago, and I talked to my editor about it, they were like, you don't write science fiction. And so that sort of derailed me for a while. And I was making notes for it, but it wasn't the top thing on my list. It wasn't my number one priority. 
And I worked on it sort of in bits and pieces. And then when Trump was actually elected, they called and said, where is it? And I thought, oh, now you're interested. So it took a while in that sense. And then also, so once Trump was elected, I didn't want to write in reaction to Trump. And so that became a piece of it for me too, which was why I felt happy that I had chosen to set the book in 2008, well before Trump was even sort of a candidate in that sense. So the novel starts off in November of 2008 in a hotel in Phoenix. Tell us what's happening. Well, November 2008, it's election night and the John McCain victory party is supposed to be happening in Phoenix. And as the results come in and it becomes increasingly clear that Barack Obama has won and not John McCain, we begin to sort of see the effects of that on McCain supporters and on basically older white Republicans who are shocked and afraid, really, of what Barack Obama's election will mean to them and to the country. And part of why that was very interesting to me was that I lived the actual opposite experience, which was lived experience for me was being in New York City and having bought a new TV for the occasion of election night, feeling very optimistic about things for Barack Obama and having friends over and then really everyone pouring out into the streets with incredible sense of jubilation and optimism about what was happening. But I feel when I look at the evolution of our politics that in some ways, Barack Obama's election also sort of unleashed the enormous racism and sexism that had been always present and very much sort of slightly under the surface in American life. And I would say it's, it has continued to blossom or be unleashed since then. And so that's what I wanted to look at. The novel follows a number of characters, but our main protagonist is, is known as the big guy. Hitchens is his name. Tell us something about who he is. Hitchens is a man who I think believes in sort of the American dream, the American ideal, as it existed in a very fantastical, mythological 1950s sort of a way. And he believes that it is his job and that of his well-off friends to preserve and protect their version of democracy. And they see that version as one where men are in power and it doesn't occur to them that there's any other possibility. Um, They are very, once they realize that they are actually sort of in their waning years and that the range of white men being completely in power and control is, is fading, it becomes terrifying to them. It is as much about their own sort of personal loss of power as it is about the greater national loss of power for white men. And what does he think has gone wrong fundamentally with his party? I think that the big guy sort of looks back and I think he feels that in some ways the party has been starting to be taken over by evangelical people and and kind of yahoos and kind of wild cowboys who have very different versions. And he in some ways longs for the traditional party, as he would describe it, as one where there were sort of decency and a sense of how people were supposed to behave and expectations. And yet at the same time, he and his friends are trying to plan a kind of almost a coup from within the government where they retake this party and they retake power. But it's interesting to me that he doesn't see that as dangerous or subversive. To him, that is just what he would describe as doing the right thing. So I think to me, the big guy's a very complicated man, and, and it raises the question of how words like democracy and the American dream have come to mean very different things to different groups of people. 
Yeah, he's he's got this this idea of you know America as it once was, as you said, a sort of nineteen fifties idealized view of America. You know that the antecedent of the sort of make America great again thing. But this is very much in his mind an yeah. America where either there just isn't separate drinking fountains, or he doesn't care about that. The the idea that this fantastic America once existed is entirely a fantasy that has to involve, you know, just ignoring a huge, a huge amount of, of history for him to come to that conclusion. Yeah. And I think part of that to me, again, you know, I always sort of had this habit of picking, I would say, in a way, the least likely character to tell a story. So, you know, who is the least likely character to tell the story of, you know, racism and sexism in America, an older white wealthy man? And in that sense, the big guy doesn't even see the ways in which he lives in a bubble. And in his bubble, the view is very different than it is for many other people. And he also doesn't even see the ways in which when he walks into a room, he has a kind of privilege that a person of color doesn't have, that a woman doesn't have, that a young girl doesn't have. But I think it is through his sort of obliviousness that he's able to both maintain this delusion or fantasy and also it's quite dangerous because obviously once he and his cohort, the Forever Men, began to sort of put their plans into action, things start to spin out of control. And that's unfortunately, and in fact, what began to happen in the United States, you know, during Trump's presidency and ever since. The group, we'll talk about a bit more in the in the second half about the, the group of people that he puts together. But his lifelong best friend, Tony, who is a man that works a civil servant, he works within the sort of Washington establishment and would work for either government. And as we find out later in the book, is is gay as well. He's under no illusions that the big guy's attitudes are racist. It's not this entire group of people that fundamentally want, you know, the Republican Party back on top that actually think like this. Yeah, I mean, I think to me, Tony is a, a very interesting character and, and in some ways modeled on both any number of men who existed in history, such as Lem Billings, who was actually John F. Kennedy's best friend, who was a closeted gay guy, and then other people like Joseph Alsop, who was a prominent journalist in Washington, who was also gay, and ways in which there have been lots of gay men very proximate to high levels of power in Washington. And in part, it was because in, in the, you know, I don't know, the old days, but certainly in the uh, 1960s, 70s, 80s, a lot of gay men didn't have family lives. They were, you know, not out of the closet to their families. And so they had, in a way, more time to devote to their jobs and so on. And then, you know, also many people died of AIDS during that period and their families didn't come to see them and didn't visit them. And so that was a reality that I was very aware of having grown up in Washington during that era. And so Tony, to me, was a very interesting character of somebody who had a different kind of both secret life, but also very strong attachments to the big guy and his family and had in some ways also a slightly, I would say, different agenda than the big guy. But was also, you know, very much sort of, I don't know, a kind of a, almost a political fixer in some senses of it. So I find a character like Tony, to me personally, to be fascinating. And then I always thought, oh, there's interesting, there's no books about this. And then literally about a month and a half ago, an incredible book came out called Secret City. And it's the history of basically hidden gay Washington, DC by James Kerchick. And it's a really fascinating book. 
Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to A.M. Holmes and we're talking about her new novel, The Unfolding. And we were just talking about Tony. So let's, yeah, we'll widen that out and talk about this group of men that the big guy puts together who are basically going to be the plotters to try and, first of all, win back power eventually for the Republican Party, but basically make America great again. And you just mentioned that, that Tony is sort of based on a composite of, of real characters. And so I presumed also for the others that this group of people, Bo, Eisner, Kissick, Metzger, who are these people based on? Well, that's a good question. They are in some ways based on the idea that actually came up during the Eisenhower administration, where uh, President Eisenhower tapped 10 men to be in charge of different aspects of the American government in case there was a nuclear war. And he sent out 10 secret letters to these men, some of whom came from corporate America, uh, most of whom were not in government at the time, and said, dear, you know, Bob, you will be in charge of agriculture in case of nuclear war. Like, show this letter to, I don't even know who you would show it to at that point. And these letters were top secret and not known for many, many years after Eisenhower, you know, completed his time as president. So that notion of the Eisenhower 10, I wanted to have the forever men be a group that represented different aspects of the American experience of the American economy. So I chose Kissick, who's, you know, from banking, and there's a judge from Texas, and there's Metzger, who's an ad man from Chicago. And so many of the details about these guys are based on kinds of facts. Metzger, to me, also is a sort of a pivotal character 
because he is this quintessential ad man and he works in Chicago and he talks all about selling candy in Chicago. Chicago is a famous candy town. And he also talks a lot about the analytical data that is now used to sell us things. And I was very fascinated by that and by the whole Cambridge Analytica scandal, which obviously was very you know, relevant in the UK. And the idea that we are all being delivered news and information based upon basically what the internet knows about us and that those algorithms and slices of what we buy, who we talk to, what we look at are getting narrower and narrower. So we're essentially being delivered our own reflection and we're being delivered what we already have said we believe in and like. And I think that is really dangerous and disturbing and probably one of the largest pieces of what will potentially derail American democracy. Let's talk about Charlotte, who is the big guy's wife. Now, I obviously don't want to give away too much about what happens in the plot of the story, but the story is also about the big guy's family. Charlotte, his wife, Megan, his daughter, who we'll come on to in a minute, but tell us something about Charlotte. Well, Charlotte to me, and, and actually the combination of Charlotte and Megan, were a way of talking about sort of women's lives in a kind of multi-generational way. And so Charlotte is a woman who says, you know, when she was growing up, no one asked her what she wanted to be when she grew up. They asked her what kind of man she wanted to marry. And so she's somebody for whom life has been, in a way, stopped time. She's lived sort of, you know, on the periphery of her husband's life and I think really has suffered and struggled. And um, I mean, I'm, I'm truly fascinated by her. I also think there is a whole sort of world of Republican women from Nancy Reagan and Betty Ford to Martha Mitchell, who really were forced to kind of keep things super zipped up and to just put on a good face. And and actually even Pat Nixon, who famously, you know, also really struggled. So as we know, Betty Ford uh, and Martha Mitchell both had drinking problems, as does Charlotte. And I think that one of the ways that they dealt with the stress of their sort of existence, non-existence was by using alcohol. And so that for me was very, very interesting. And, And to watch Charlotte both kind of come undone and crack up, but actually really also come to and to see who she is and what she wants and how she's thinking about moving forward in her life. It's interesting to say on the, on the one hand, it's obviously better for society that women are now able to play more of an active role in politics at the Republican Party. But then you actually look at the reality of some of those people. Yeah, I mean, I think that's also really interesting because we're the forever men to see Marjorie Taylor Greene, and they do talk a little bit about Sarah Palin. I mean, it's interesting because those certainly two in particular are sort of extremes. And on the other hand, there's also a way in which I look at Liz Cheney, and I see Liz Cheney's behavior in the last you know few months on the January 6th committee, and I think, wow, it is amazing to me that Dick Cheney, who is a very mercurial, complicated man and a very complicated politician, has a daughter who decides that she absolutely is standing up for democracy and the constitution and the rule of law in the clearest sense. And I think that is wild and also is interesting when I look at the relationship between the big guy and his daughter, Megan, because the big guy believes that Megan will follow in his footsteps Uh, And he doesn't realize that as much as Megan comes to know him better and he comes to know her better, they actually may be on very different divergent paths. So Megan, yeah. And again, we're obviously not going to give too much away about about where the book leads, but sort of what happens to Megan to set her off on the path of the book? So I would say Megan's life early in the book is a very kind of safe, protected sheltered childhood. And then as the as the story literally begins to unfold, Megan votes for the first time. 
And as she's witness to the upset that she sees around her when McCain doesn't win, she begins to ask questions and begins to realize that there's a very different point of view about America, about American experience, that she's not even particularly been witness to or had a chance to explore. And so for Megan, the election of 2008, combined to what she's learning in school, which is also about history and the role of women in history, is sort of beginning to serve as a kind of coming to consciousness or a sort of a wake-up call that she needs to kind of look a little further than just what's been delivered to her. And so I think Megan also is in some ways meant to kind of represent a sort of a hope for a different future. And just one more thing, and then I'll I'll get you to, to read a little bit, if you would. These guys they all loathe the right wing, like the far right, the fundamentalists. But of course, you know, as reality has shown them, we're not giving away anything about the book because we've all lived through it. What they're talking about doing here is basically, you know, fundamentally, ultimately, we'll put these people in power. And, you know, where we are now, we're looking, you know, forward to perhaps somebody like DeSantis taking power and becoming president. We're all going to be looking back to Donald Trump like some sort of... Uh, some sort of golden age. So like, where is, you know, where do you think the Republican Party is going? Well, where I think it's going, I actually would say in some ways, I don't know, because it has become to me, the party of misinformation, and of, of really of lies, and the idea that they can continue to say that Biden didn't win the election, or all these things, that to me is very disturbing. Because all of a sudden, if you have the idea that, you know, in a country with two major political parties, that one of them can campaign and win on non-factual information. So it's not even, it's, it's narrative, it's spun narrative that's, you know, dangerous. I worry very much because I think I don't know what people would be voting for. I don't understand how we would function in that way. Um, I don't understand how we could continue to be a democracy when you could argue that there are no rules anymore, that things that were either legislated or taken on faith as measures of you know, good sportsmanship or decency are no longer abided by. So that worries me. I think were the forever men to sort of look at where we are now, I think there would be a mixture of kind of awe and horror. And they would say, did we do this? And they wouldn't even know because it would say if their plan had worked, it wouldn't be traceable back to what they had done, which is part of really what has happened this incredible influx of what we call dark money into politics and sort of what happened from the 1970s through now, which was the rise of you know think tanks in Washington, which is what people would do when they left the political, not even establishment, when they left the government system, they would go and work for a private think tank. So all of these places literally spin information and spin propaganda. So even last week, there was an article that came out that talked about the largest dark money given yet, which is by a man who is involved with the Federalist Society, which is also the group that helped put, you know, all of these conservative justices on the Supreme Court. There's such an influx of money paying for ads, for social media, for all these kinds of things that is not traceable or accountable back to any one person. So there's no philosophical point of view that you can say, oh, that belongs to this guy or that guy. So I would say the forever men would be awed and and horrified by where they are, because I think they really like to see themselves, although deeply conservative and so on, as having a point of view and a kind of protection of what they think of as the American dream, That's which is different to say than what some other people might think of as the American dream. And you finish it off with a little bit of a reading. Yeah, of course. 
So I'm going to read to you just a little bit from a section where Megan has come home to Wyoming, which is where her parents are living, and she's going to vote for the first time. And so her parents and she are in the place where they're going to cast their votes, and they're just sort of making their way to the voting booths. Today's the day, someone says. The moment is now, another man adds. She realizes that her mother and father are the only people who got dressed up. Her father's wearing a camel hair top coat over his suit. He skipped the tie, but she has no doubt it's in his pocket, just in case. Her mother is wearing a red coat over a pair of nice slacks. That's what she calls them, slacks. It's always slacks unless she's going riding, and then they're dungarees. Neither is dressed in a way that would keep them warm if they had to wait outside. Everyone else is wearing regular clothes, hats, gloves, parkas over long pants. Her own coat bears the symbol of an upscale company on the upper arm. A while ago, she put a piece of dark duct tape over it, hoping perhaps people wouldn't notice. Picked out your turkey for Thanksgiving yet? Father asks one of the men. She notices he's guiding the small talk away from events at hand and towards more generic seasonal chat. No, sir, the man says. This year I'm going to visit my brother up in Seattle. Fine man you are, her father says. It's charming how pleased your father is to be among these men and women. He's beaming. His excitement is palpable. He shakes hands, any hand he can get a hold of. You have to touch people, he says. You have to look them in the eye and listen to what they have to tell you. He's told her this in the past. You don't have to like it, but you have to listen. We used to have a word for it, decency. Nice to see you, her mother says to one of the women. As they move around the room, both her mother and father greet strangers as though they've met them before. Good of you to come out, a man calls to them. When she was younger, going places with her parents used to make her feel special. People paid attention. They imagined that she was a princess. When she stops to think about it now, she's embarrassed. Her father moves with a kind of swagger, occupying space in a way that might make you think he's the candidate. He's not, but he's the machine that makes it go. The money. Bull in a china shop, her mother once said when she was angry with him. And then she got defensive when Megan looked shocked. You don't get rich being Mr. Nice Guy, her mother said, and left her at that. They'll be coming, she hears someone says, just before lunch. And then again, at the end of the day, they'll be showing up to vote. Some people are going to show up for sure. That's what they do when they have something to say. Some folks feel like it's already been said, another one adds. Folks don't like to be told what to do. A little naive, her father whispers. It's always interesting to hear how common people say it. Why do you say common people, Megan asks. He looks confused. What should I say? Just people, she says. When you say common people, it sounds like you see yourself as different from everyone else. I am different, he says. I'm rich and I'm proud of it. Common people should be glad to see me and be happy when I buy their products and eat in their restaurants. It's a sign of approval. Whose approval, Megan asks. My approval, father says. And because you're rich, your approval means more than someone else's, she asks. If you were studying for a test, would you take advice from an A student or a C student, he asks. Is this a test, she asks. It's life, he says. It makes people feel bad, like they're less than equal, she says. It's not my job to make people feel equal, her father says. When I hear the word common, I think of Aaron Copeland's fanfare for the common man, her mother says. I attended a performance in New York years ago when you were just a baby. Her mother pauses. What's nice about a place like this is that people are neighborly and they help out. So I've been talking to A.M. Holmes. We've been talking about her new novel, The Unfolding, which is out in the UK now from Granta. A.M. Holmes, thank you very much for telling thank us about you. it. Thank you. Fantastic. This episode of Little Atoms was produced, presented and edited by me, Neil Denny. Little Atoms is hosted by Acast and published by 89up. 
The show is broadcast on Mondays and Saturdays on Resonance 104.4 FM. Thanks for listening. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.